0: Hi folks, a quick announcement before the show today. First up, events. We've got three events coming up and they're all in person. I think I said earlier in the year that this was going to be the year of the face-to-face catch-up and it certainly seems to be going that way. So, Thursday the 13th of June. This is for you Brisbane friends. So, the Brisbane Take On Board Meetup will be on Thursday the 13th of June an informal gathering of listeners, program alumni, friends, and connections. It's a free event, so come along. Next up, the 18th of July, this is for our Warnable and Great South Coast Take On Board Friends, an event run in conjunction with Leadership Great South Coast and Bernadette Northeast. Governance from fundamentals to advanced practice. Super Early Bird tickets for this event close on the 10th of June, so get on it. Then the third event, a bit further down the track, the 22nd of August. This is for our Sydney friends A Take On Board Meetup in Sydney. Details of all of these events are on my website. There's a link to that in the show notes and I would love to see you at one or all of them. Okay, that's it for today. Now, on with the show. Hello, Take On Board peeps. Before we get started, a few things about the show today, which was recorded at the most recent Take On Board event. Live recordings mean that sometimes, well, the audio isn't as great as I'd like, and this one is no exception. But bear with us, as Morgana Ryan is a wealth of information about strategy, so the content is great, even if sometimes the audio isn't. Alrighty, enough from me. Let's turn it over to Morgana and the fabulous Take On Board community as we hear some pearls of wisdom about strategy. On with the show. (laughs) Hello, and welcome to the Take On Board podcast, where we talk all things boards and governance. I'm your host, Halja Svensson. Being on a board can be interesting, valuable, and exciting, yet it can also be really lonely, challenging, and hard. So, here at Take On Board, we'll bring you weekly tips, tricks, and advice to help you build your governance wisdom. We'll shine a light on how to navigate your way onto your first board or to build your board portfolio. Will also help you to work through those challenges that keep you awake at night. Each week, I'll talk to women who have been there, done that, and together we'll discover what we need to take on board to be your best in the boardroom. Welcome, everybody to the May Take On Board Breakfast. Breakfast, I think, for most of you, but we do have a couple of North Americans here, I think. So, the May Take On Board event, which may or may not be whilst you're having breakfast. It may be more a glass of wine for wherever you are in the world. So, awesome to have you here and to be hearing from Morgana today. We will be talking developing strategy from global to local and going to have a fantastic conversation Even though there's lots of us here, you will still get the opportunity to meet each other. It's always about building the community and you getting to know each other as well, so there'll be plenty of opportunities for that. Before we get started, I would like to, as always, acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we variously meet. For me, that is the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and paying respects to Elders past, present and emerging and any First Nations people that might be here today. Let me introduce the fabulous Morgana Ryan. Morgana is the board chair at Info Exchange and Connecting Up. And the former chair of their strategy committee and eagle-eyed people will have noticed that when this event first got publicized she was the deputy chair of the board and the chair of the strategy committee and during the period she has been made the chair so congratulations to you morgana and more importantly congratulations to the board of info exchange and connecting up for having you as their chair because i have no doubt you'll do a magnificent job in that role as well also since we first put this event out there she's joined the board of care australia As well, so she's moving along in all of her board roles. Morgana is an internationally experienced business leader and non executive director with over 20 years' involvement in the corporate and international development and not for profit sectors. She has been successful in working with leadership and boards of complex, multinational organisations to achieve improved strategic, technology, and social outcomes. Morgana excels in building trust based relationships and teaming to maximise results. She is also the author of these two books, Navigating Change for International NGOs and Building a Better International NGO. The links to those are over in the chat.
1: So with that, Morgana, over to you. Thanks for the introduction, Hallier. It's lovely to be here. This is a topic that I'm really passionate about, um, and I'm very excited to spend about uh, 20 minutes today talking with you on the topic of strategic planning. Depending on who you talk to, um, you'll find people who are really passionate about something like Porter's Five Forces or McKinsey 7Ss or some other strategy methodology. Today, I'm not going to be here talking about specific methodologies. Instead, I really want to focus on the elements that you need to consider, both in developing your new strategy, but also in how you go about implementing it, because the implementation piece is the really critical piece for actually bringing it to life. I also really want to flag at the outset that no matter how well organized you are and no matter how engaging the strategy process is, it's impossible to please all of the people all the time and nor should you try. So don't don't sacrifice having the really tough uh, conversations and tackling the really difficult questions because you think that you're trying to keep everybody engaged and on board. It's better to use this you know, unique moment in the organization's time to really sit down and tackle those issues, even when you don't know the answers, but by the nature of having the conversations, you start to move to a better place in terms of how to seize opportunities and tackle challenges. The other thing I'll flag at the outset is good strategy is about making choices and being focused. And I'll come back to this theme several times throughout my presentation but it's really really important that you don't try and jam everything in the kitchen sink into your final strategic plan and that you do really try and narrow down the focus of what it's it's all about so firstly turning to strategic planning i'd just like to start with a few general considerations it's really important to understand your organization and that's from a few different lenses so firstly i would say know the culture of your organization So I spent a lot of my career working in upstream oil and gas, and it's fair to say that in those kinds of organisations, the technical experts, the engineers really are key. And if you don't have them in a fairly pivotal role in the strategy process, then you're going to struggle with buy-in. On the flip side, um, I also spent a lot of time working in international development in the for-purpose sector. And... I think it's fair to say that this is a sector that is a strange combination of hierarchical but very consensus driven. I like to describe it as the why do something in two meetings if you can do it in ten kind of approach. So, if you're designing a strategic planning process for an NGO, I would recommend that you really understand the culture and the extent to which wide consultation is needed and make sure that's factored into how you design the process. The other piece is around footprint, really understanding, you know, are you a multinational organisation? Do you have lots of lines of business, complicated lines of business? How are they going to factor into the way you approach strategy? And also look at lessons from the past. So although you're at a different point in time now, it's still really useful to look back and reflect what worked well in previous strategic planning processes. What was less successful and why? And how you can look to that to maximise the things that worked well and try and reduce the things that might be a bit bumpy or challenging. So there's no perfect way to do strategy and there's no one perfect model. And whichever process or methodology you choose, you still have to tailor it for your organisation. So again, thinking about the culture piece, consider language. If you're truly multinational, it may not be feasible to run the process just in one language and you really need to think about how you provide opportunities for workshops for strategy documents for the final strategy to be multilingual to factor that in you really need to engage the board early to both get their buy-in for the process but also to to determine with them the role that the board members want to play and I've seen approaches where no board members have been involved until the sort of board strategic planning day and I've seen other cases where it's worked really well where you might have a smaller number of board members who have certain expertise that may actually get involved in some of the working sessions of the strategy. Again, there's no perfect answer. It's about what's right for your organization. You really need to know how the strategy process is going to tie in with your existing business planning um, and business processes. It's also, again, important from that cultural perspective. If you have a you know, a significantly diverse workforce or a large geographic footprint, you need to factor things like, you know, is there Chinese New Year? Is there Ramadan and Eid? How do these major events fall in in the cycle of your annual planning process and will they cause um, issues where some parts of the organisation aren't available to engage? And then ultimately, how does it tie in with your board meeting cycles, your strategic planning and your financial planning and budgeting cycles as well? It's also important to remember that there's a balance you don't want to start your strategy process with a completely blank sheet of paper, but you also want to be really careful that you don't get too bogged down in your current products and services. So it's finding a sort of a middle ground that you you have some reference to where you've, where you've come from as an organisation, but you don't completely become bogged down in the detail of that, that you miss the opportunity for blue sky thinking. A small note to insecure perfectionists out there who may not have designed a strategic planning process before. Be really, really careful about not overcompensating and trying to gold plate the process at the expense of stakeholder management and engagement. Ultimately, good strategic planning is about bringing diverse voices together, creating spaces for conversations to happen, creating spaces for prioritisation decisions to be made. Process is important, but it's really bringing those stakeholders together and getting their engagement that, that makes a difference. And then finally, consider the pace that's right for your organisation. Again, you know, if you know that you need a lot of consensus, it may then by default mean that your process needs to take a bit longer. If you're in a situation where there's a lot of opportunities or a lot of challenge um, and you need to move fast, that may also dictate the way you design your approach for uh, for speed. Resourcing is really key. So I can't emphasise enough the importance of diversity in a strategic planning process because the more diverse voices you have, the greater the depth of the conversation and the more likely you are able to better address those big thorny um, strategic questions and opportunities that are floating around the organization. So you need to choose people who are knowledgeable and credible, but you want to really try and choose fairly widely to make sure that there's good representation across the organization there's also a good opportunity to bring in some of the naysayers or the, the squeaky wheels into the process as well, because often they have some really good insights and it may also build credibility into the process if you're seen to have some of the, the critics or the challenges involved as well. I can't emphasize enough the importance of having IT at the table. And this is not IT in the traditional sense of, you know, keep people with working telephones and laptops and the lights on, etc. This is really about strategic IT and IT enabled business. This is having a conversation, particularly in the modern world, around how you use technology to better serve your customers. If you're in development, how to have greater social impact, how to better manage the organization, be it through reporting, financial management systems, etc., HR systems. So definitely you need to have IT at the table. Ideally, you also have IT, someone with IT skills in your board as well. If you don't have the luxury of having a dedicated chief strategy officer or a dedicated strategic planning team, then you are going to have to think seriously about how you resource the process. Um, Because although I said earlier, you know, it's not about gold plating the process, it's about engaging the stakeholders, it still takes time to design a process, set up all the meetings, make sure that the right inputs are available and outputs are produced after the workshops and things. So... As a leadership and as a board, you need to have that conversation early on about how you're going to put resources to the task. And I also think a strategic planning process is a really good opportunity to engage external consultants. Now, of course, coming from a management consulting background, I have a bias that I'll declare up front here. But I do think there are a few different ways in which you can use consultants. Definitely, if you're considering new areas for your organisation to go and you don't have the skills in-house then bringing in some some experts, getting research on key topics is a really good use of time. You can also, in the absence of a dedicated um, chief strategy officer or strategic planning team, use consultants to help run the process. But a word of warning, if you go down that path, you still need to make sure that you have staff from your organisation who are working in partnership with those consultants because you need Institutional ownership, you can't outsource strategy entirely. It's not effective. So how? (laughs) What are the key steps in a strategic planning review? And I would say no matter which methodology you use, there will always be some component of the following four pieces. So there is a context and consultation piece where you're looking at the internal and external contexts. Then there's a a sort of an analyse key strategic questions and make choices, then there's a further narrowing down where you go to making um, integrated strategic recommendations and prior- choosing priority areas. And then finally, you come out with an integrated strategic plan that contains directions and goals. So going back to the first, the context and consultation, this really needs to assess the current organisational context, your organisational environment, that's your processes, people, systems, etc. the core competencies of your organisation. So fundamentally... What is your organisation good at? And usually there's only about three to four of these. So this is not your products and services, but these are the underlying capabilities that you then build your products and services on top of. And a really good example I can give of this is if you look at the World Food Programme, they have a really strong core competency in supply chain management. You also want to learn from progress and success of the past, not just in strategic planning process, but in terms of your organisation and how it operates and where you've been able to, you know, maybe go into new markets or operate and innovate and other areas where you've struggled. You also want to review the external environment and key stakeholder trends. And this is where you may look to customer surveys, again, getting some external help, really looking at what's happening outside of your organisation and challenging yourself to better understand what's going on, who your competitors are, etc. At this point in your strategic planning process, through looking at the internal and the external, you should be able to develop uh, what I would call a, a long list of strategic questions. So this is kind of the big list of questions, challenges, opportunities that you want to deal with as you go through the strategic planning process. I would also just flag in this stage as much as possible you want to use data. So that's you know staff surveys, customer surveys, monitoring and evaluation information, external reports, internal reports, Wherever you can get quality strategic analysis, try and use it, try and make this the real kind of analytical stage so you get a good solid understanding of where you're at and where the opportunities might lie. So in the second phase around analysing key strategic questions and choices, this is your chance to really bring together the brains of the business and to start to figure out know what are the most important strategic areas or opportunities and to tackle and carry out a further level of analysis debate scenario planning modeling um, including financial modeling on those and then in the third stage you start to make choices so you really need to narrow down your focus and start to think about what those choices are going to be for the next three to five years depending on the time horizon you've chosen for your strategy and you may even want to look you know, with a 10-year view, even if your strategy is only three or five years, just to help you sort of look aspirationally and then come back to what you need to tackle in a shorter time frame. At this point, you really need to articulate the choices with clear goals and targets. It has to be measurable, it has to be connected. And then in the final stage, stage four, you come out with your integrated strategic plan with absolutely crystal clear directions and goals for the organisation. Now, I just want to make a quick note at this point around prioritisation because it's particularly relevant as you go through the stages of your strategic planning process because you need to narrow down. But it's also important as we get um, into the next phase, which I'm going to talk about, which is implementation. So the thing around prioritisation is it's actually really hard. And I've seen very, very large multinational corporates and I've seen very large international NGOs and I've seen very small organisations all struggle with making prioritisation choices. And my key takeaway is that when people have to make decisions that they're uncomfortable with, then they'll find ways to avoid making that decision. And one of the most common tactics is to basically throw stones at the process they're being asked to engage in. So instead of making choices about what to prioritize, they'll talk about why the options they're being asked to prioritize aren't right. It's comparing apples and pears. And it becomes a very, very frustrating and unproductive conversation. So, my insight from years of doing this is try and frame your prioritization conversations as a positive, not a negative. So, instead of asking people to deprioritize and choose what they're not doing, put their focus on what are the top four to six things that as an organization we absolutely must do. What are our top priorities? And by putting all the focus there, you put all the energy there and it starves oxygen for the lower, less priority things. But it also gets people really inspired and excited about the important stuff, which helps create momentum. So are we there yet? How do we know if our strategic planning process is successful? There's a couple of key questions to ask yourself. So first, does it provide a future vision for the organization that is both unifying, stretching and inspiring? Does it provide guidance and in some case answers to the really important strategic issues and opportunities? Does it provide guidance for prioritising investment choices? And this piece is particularly important when we move to implementing a strategy which I'm about to talk about. Does it have high-level goals across the life cycle of the strategy? And this is where we talk about potentially three horizons and looking at sort of the short, the medium and the longer term of your strategic plan. Is it understood and endorsed by governance boards? Now, this is really important when you're dealing with multinational organisations or if you're dealing, say, in Australia and you've got state-based entities as well and they all have their own local boards, you have to think about how this strategy plays out across all those levels of the board. Is it easy to understand and articulate? Is it meaningful for other entities within the family, whether it's a confederation, a federation or conglomerate, etc.? Having that clarity is very important. And from a perspective of is it understood, I'm a really big fan of strategy on a page. So if you can articulate your strategy in a single summary page, that is fantastic. I'd be very wary of what I saw when I first went into international development, which was uh, an international NGO which had an executive summary that ran for nearly 20 pages and a strategy that ran over 50 pages. That's a case of jamming in everything in the kitchen sink. It's hard to implement a strategy like that because there's not enough focus and it's just too much information. And then your final checkpoint is, does it bring the organization together intellectually and emotionally? And James Crowley and I, when we wrote our book, we flagged a concept of motivating glue and enabling glue. So the motivating glue are the pieces in the organization that really get staff excited. It's your vision, it's your mission, it's your employees. The enabling glue is the not very sexy stuff, but the stuff that's often vitally important, it's your IT systems, it's your business processes, it's your leadership behaviours, etc. Often strategies will get very bogged down in the enabling glue because they're pieces that need to happen, especially when organisations have been through a period of rapid growth. But if you don't have the right balance between the motivating and the enabling glue, then it can be quite hard to keep the momentum and the energy behind um, the changes that need to be implemented for the strategy. So it's really important for boards and for leadership to really think about that balance of the motivating and the enabling glue. So for the last couple of minutes, I just want to talk about implementing a new strategy. And really to do that, you want to start with things that the board should be thinking about. If your board doesn't have a risk appetite, now is a really, really great time to develop a risk appetite statement. If they do, now's the time to revisit it. It's the opportunity for the board to set the tone for where they have zero or low tolerance for risk and where they have an appetite for organisations to go out and be a bit more experimental, a bit more innovative and take some risks. If that risk appetite statement isn't calibrated to your new strategy, it's going to make conversations at the board level very um, confusing and it's going to make it very difficult for leadership because they've got a strategy that says one thing and they've got a board endorsed risk appetite statement that says something else. The other big metric lever for boards is CEO performance metrics. So what gets measured is what gets done. And at this point where you've got a new strategic plan, it's a great time to sit down as a board and revisit what are the performance metrics we're giving the CEO. And then to think about, actually, for the CEO, how those performance metrics flow through the organisation as well. The next piece is culture. You know, the, the board sets the tone for culture at the top. So, they really need to think about what are some of the key messages from the new strategy. Are there certain behaviours or things that they need to be really encouraging at the board level that then sets the tone to flow through the organisation around the culture that they want to see. Board succession is also really important. So, ideally you've got a skills matrix Mm -hmm. and a view of the current board members. What you also want to do at this point is revisit that skills matrix and say, okay, so knowing what's in the new strategic plan and our vision for the next three to five years, do we need different skills at the board level or do we need different emphasis on the current skills that we have? So update that skills matrix, ask the the current board members to revisit their mapping against the updated matrix. And then if you do have the opportunity to do board recruitment, make sure you're doing it with a new strategy in mind, not kind of with the history of where the organisation's been. And then the final piece that I think is so critical is what I call the triangle of integrated planning. And James and I talk about this in our book. It's the idea that at the top you've got your strategic plan with your strategic goals. On the other corner you've got the business and financial planning And this is the piece that people most often think about when they think about strategic business planning. So we've got our new strategy, how do we make sure that the business processes and the financial planning and budgeting follows the strategy? But I think the third pillar is critically important and it's the one that often gets forgotten and that's individual performance management. This is the way that you actually motivate your staff to also live and breathe the strategy. And it's about thinking of the metrics and the performance behaviours that you want to to judge people's annual performance on, and how that relates to the new strategy. So as a board, you want to be thinking about what sort of reporting are you getting, what kind of conversations are you having, that make sure you look at the implementation of the strategy across those three pieces: the strategic goals, the business and financial planning, and then the individual performance management. And then finally when it comes to strategic business planning you're thinking about um, the strategic change initiatives that you need to implement and James and I talk about the half-life in the book so it's this idea that you want to try and implement half of the major changes in the strategy in the first 12 to 18 months even if the strategy runs for five years because you're trying to get that momentum as quickly as you can but at the same time it's really important to be aware of how long change takes to flow through an organisation. And I think this is particularly critical for multinational um, organisations, organisations that might be national but have a footprint spread all over the country. And if you think about it in its simplest sense, you've got a board, you've got senior leadership, underneath that you've got sort of headquarters staff and then you might have some sort of regional staff, regional officers and then staff at lot levels, partner organizations, et cetera. So at the board level, you have a, a package of change initiatives that you're looking at and you're endorsing. And you say, yep, go, this is our real focus. And as a board, you might talk about those for 12 months. And then you get to the end of the 12 months and you, you think, oh, yep, that is done. But in reality, <laughs> it may have only flowed halfway through the organization. So it might be, yep, it's all happened at headquarters, about the regions and the countries are only just starting to hear about this kind of change package, even though at a board level you've been talking about it for 12 months. So, again, for the board, you really need to think about what measures and reporting am I getting to understand how the changes are flowing through the organisation and how do we make sure as a board that we're not moving too quickly onto the next tranche of changes before the first lot have really had a chance to embed thoroughly through the organisation. And again, at this point, it's all about making prioritization choices and putting the emphasis and the focus on where you can have the biggest impact, where you you have the greatest need for action and making sure that those things get prioritized first. Excellent. Thank you. It's really hard to fit. Um, strategy and uh, implementing strategy in 20 minutes. (laughs) So I've gone through at a fairly fast pace, but hopefully that's given everyone a flavor of the sorts of things to think about, whether you're a a very small organization or whether you're a huge multinational, there's some fairly common themes to, to consider. Thank you.
0: Absolutely awesome. There is There is fabulous stuff in there. I always feel bad keeping people to time, but I want to make sure that we all get an opportunity to discuss as well. So, thank you, Morgana. That was absolutely fabulous. I'm about to put you into breakout rooms to have a chat about what you just heard and to come up with questions. Breakout rooms are open. All right. Welcome back, everybody. I think we now have everybody returned to the main room. Feel free to stay in Slido, continue to add as we have the conversation and continue to upvote questions because we will go through them in the order that they appear. And if we don't get through them all, which is likely because there's quite a few here, the plan is that Morgana and I will continue recording after this event is finished and they might appear as a special Q&A podcast on Take On Board uh, for those that we don't manage to get through here today. So... Jane, I can't see you on my screen, but hopefully you are there. Jane Bogue, if you can take yourself off mute. You have the first question here around risk appetite statements. Can I ask that people say their name, what boards they're on, if any, and then ask their question? So, Jane, over to you. So, Jane Bogue, um, I'm currently on the board of Winchingham, which is a specialty homeless aged care provider in Victoria and about to be in Tasmania. So my question is around risk appetite. It seems to be a very popular topic at the moment given Victorian regulatory changes requiring organisations from the 1st of July to have a risk appetite statement. And so that's Victorian public sector organisations. How do we keep them current? How do we use them to make decisions? And are there tips and hints? I'm certainly encouraging boards to ask for them to be attached to agendas or to business cases when they're being asked to make a decision. But if you've got any other tips and hints that I can share more broadly, I'd really appreciate it, Morgana.
2: Having a dedicated session with the board to kind of come up with that first version of the risk appetite is really important. So it's a really focused discussion. It's not being distracted by other board matters. But once you come up with it, again, it's not that set and forget. It's how you bring it to life. And... You know, I guess the minimalist option is you're getting regular reporting updates on the risk tolerances you've set and how the organisation's performing against those. But to really bring it to life, I am, I'm increasingly a fan of cover sheets on board agenda items. And the idea that your cover sheet for each topic tells you which item of the strategy it relates to and um, which bit of the risk appetite statement it relates to. And then also clearly state, you know, is it for noting, is it for decision-making? If it is for decision-making, what's the decision? So it's very clearly signposting for board members. This is what we need you to decide on. This is how it relates to our strategy. And this is, you know, what you've said as a board is your risk appetite for this topic. So then it should anchor the board conversation in the right level of risk rather than individual board members' um, own risk appetite unduly influencing the conversation again i think it's, you know when we talk about diversity we so often talk about you know the more physical bits of diversity like gender ethnic background etc but diversity of risk appetite on a board is really really important and worth considering when you're doing board recruitment how you manage that and and um sometimes depending on how you do your risk appetite process if you survey the board members before you have that initial workshop, keep the data anonymous, but you get to see actually the, the spread of risk appetite within your board as well, which is quite constructive.
0: Fantastic. Thanks, Morgana. Awesome. Next question. Oh, fantastic. From our North, one of our North Americans here today, Caitlin. Caitlin, I'm going to call on you to ask your question about disgruntled voices in the room. Caitlin, over to you.
3: Thanks, Helia. Hi, everyone. I'm Caitlin Siostrom. I'm on the board of uh, an organization which is focused on gaining employment for women in the greater Toronto area in Ontario. Um, and my question, Morgana, is, you know, I love your comment about bringing the disgruntled voices into the room for these conversations, but wondering if you have any advice or any practical tips on how you can do it constructively or in a way that, you know, gets those perspectives, but without derailing the process.
2: Yeah, and I, I'll confess I was heavily influenced by my experience in international development on this one. I think it's relevant in all industries, but um, that is a, a sector that has staff with particularly strong opinions, particularly on the programmatic side of what good development practice looks like. When you choose the team, you can't get away from the fact that the people have to be um, credible and knowledgeable. So sometimes, you know, there's a disgruntled voice, which is just a disgruntled voice that's <laughs> just it's not productive. But if it is someone who's respected in the organisation and has some, some really valuable knowledge, but their style is a bit awkward or, or difficult, you still absolutely want them as part of the process. And sometimes that actually helps bring more credibility to the process. I'm a big believer in if you create the right framing and process, it will create an environment for the right conversation. So again, it's, it's some of those points I was saying about you know, framing a positive conversation about prioritisation rather than negative thinking about the stakeholders you've got in the discussion and as much as you can, trying to frame it in a way that will allow the voices to come out but not allow individuals to railroad it. And it's, it's quite heavily dependent. And this is also why, you know, having dedicated resource or resources to run a strategy process can be very valuable because, yeah, having structure around those conversations helps. Um, sorry, it's is not a perfect answer, but... It's it actually it's a hard it's a hard question. <laughs> and sometimes you know you you look at the, the stakeholders and you just think, with the combination of other people I've chosen to involve, I don't think this will work, and so I'm not going to go with it. But in other cases you think actually looking at the other people I've got in the room, this dynamic could actually work quite well. it's worth it's worth doing. It's also relevant for your board members. So if you have particular voices in the boardroom that you know are going to be, difficult, challenging, uh, problematic, then there can actually be value if they're willing to engage them in the strategy process at the, at the outset and, and all the way through, particularly if they've got networks or, or insights that are valuable, they're willing to make the time. And I think this is possibly more relevant for for-purpose organisations than for commercial organisations. But you know, if you give them a seat at the table and they have a sense of ownership or engagement, then it's a chance to bring out their issues through the process and not at the very end when you need endorsement for the the actual strategy in the boardroom.
0: Thank you. Thanks for the question, Caitlin, and thanks, Morgana. Leanne, you're up next. You've got a question about flags on the strategy. So, Leanne, ah, yes, I can see you and you're off mute. Fantastic. So, again, if you can introduce yourself, uh, your name, what boards you're on, and then if you could ask the question.
3: Thanks, Heliane. Hi, Morgana. My name is Leanne Williams and I'm on an independent school board and a hospital board and I'm a CEO reporting to a board. And our group was talking about what happens when your strategy midway through isn't, isn't working. And, and our group talked about the risk appetite and how that comes to the board, which would be one indicator of flags of, um, strategy not going in the right direction and the same with the performance reporting but we were interested to hear your perspective on whether there's any other indicators outside of those two that would be an indicator that the strategy needs reviewing or it's not not on track for what should be happening
2: yes it's particularly hard i think in in organizations that have a large geographic footprint. Uh, you know, referencing my last diagram because it's actually quite difficult to see what's happening in in remote locations or across multiple lines of businesses and things. Um, I'm a bit of an advocate for directors, the noses in, hands out. Insofar as you know, to really know what's going on in an organisation, you need to have some feel <laughs> of, you know, just beyond the CEO and the executive. Um, and I know in the AICD um, conference in March, there was quite a bit of discussion from a number of the panellists about someone from a large supermarket chain actually spending some time on the, the cash register in the store or now doesn't necessarily have to go to that level but opportunities for board members I think to engage with the organisation without getting into the management space obviously but to get a real sense of what's happening on the ground is, is very valuable. I would also say you know as a board you need to look at the quality of reporting you're getting, uh, and Particularly in international NGOs, this is a challenge. And if I may jump on my hobby horse for one minute, one of my greatest frustrations for the for-purpose sector is the obsession with admin and overhead. I think it is the worst metric ever. You would never tell a large bank that they can't afford to spend money on, you know, IT systems or their people. But by telling for purpose organizations that they have to limit to 10% or less how much they spend on themselves as an organization, you actually inhibit them from putting in place the systems and the processes. That allow them to see how the organization is performing and I'm always using any opportunity I have if I speak to a donor or even a mum and dad supporter of a not-for-profit to really challenge them on that mindset so it's off a slight tangent but I, I do think there's something there for not-for-profit purpose organizations with your strategy around if the reporting is not giving you the information you need to see as a board you need to challenge leadership to look at how you can change that. And even if you can't, you know, even if you don't have the systems and processes, there must be ways because it's also then an interesting challenge to say, well, as a leadership team, what reporting are you looking at? to your decision-making about how the organisation is running? Because ultimately reporting should be rolling up through the various levels of the organisation and the board should be seeing you know, a snapshot of what everybody else is looking at to manage.
0: Fabulous. Thank you, Leanne. Thanks, Morgana. The next one, I'm going to go to the one from Christy. Christy, you've got a question here about, tips on how you scale your approach in smaller organisations?
3: Thanks, Helia. Uh, I'm Christy Robson. I'm on three boards. I sit on a, a hospital board uh, on the New South Wales-Victorian border, a regional health service, and I also sit on two regulation health regulation boards under AFRA and also under the HPCA in, in Sydney. And my question is that we were discussing around we found Morgana, a lot of the stuff that you were talking about was really great, but it felt like it was sort of targeted around more of those sort of larger organisations. And we were just wondering whether you had some tips around how you could potentially scale down the approach for say organisations that had mainly just the board and a few paid staff or minimally paid staff, um, particularly when you didn't have lots of Um, staff that were able to generate reporting and data and those sorts of things to be able to give you that information to uh, effectively make that that strategy. So I suppose it's around, does a large organisation strategy look the same um, process as a smaller organisation?
2: Yeah, good question. Um, My first point would be, I actually think prioritisation for small organisations is even more important because you have such limited resources. And it's really important for boards of small organisations to, <laughs> to, to constantly challenge the CEO about, you know, where, where are you going to get the most uh, impact from, <laughs> for your investment of your time? Depending on the type of your organisation, I would to say if you're, you know, a community environmental organisation, you've got a, a, a network of, you know, really young, engaged supporters, I'd reach out to that network because it's amazing the number of skills and capabilities that exist in those networks of people who might be willing to volunteer their time and bring in their, their expertise on technology or trends in X or trends in Y. And it's a great opportunity for them to engage with the organisation. So I would, go, I would go out. I would also go up to the board to look at the board in terms of their skills and capabilities and their network, particularly if they've got links into any of the big, or even medium-sized consulting firms. Quite often, you'll be able to get pro bono support from from some of those if you have the right networks and the right conversations, and that can be quite powerful and useful. But yeah, I think you you still need to do the fundamentals of, you know, where is our organisation at? What are our organisational strengths? What are some of the trends in the market? Even if you can't do really really detailed analysis, but at least having those conversations. So. Um, the board is aware and the a few staff are aware and still framing up the big questions. Because without those big questions, it's very hard to know where to go. And whether you're a big organisation or a small organisation, you still sit on a number of fundamental challenges and opportunities and without talking about them, then you, you just drift. So, you obviously don't need all the working groups and the, the big structure and the full-time workforce or whatever to run the process. But the basic bones of the thing should still happen. And I think you probably use your board more for those conversations in the absence of a wider staff group. And again, I would look at um, supporters of the organisation too and bringing
0: them in. Fabulous. Thank you. Thanks, Christy. Thanks, Morgana. Susan, I'm going to come to you, Susan Slattery. You've got a question about integrity of feedback. So, Susan, wherever you are, can I come to you to introduce yourself and to ask the question? Hi,
3: everyone. Yeah, so I'm Susan. I am on a board of a small NGO, International Aid NGO. So really relevant discussion. Um, But similar to Kirsty's question, we were discussing in a small organisation, you know, when we're getting feedback from teams. So we talked about that idea of how it's resonating with the staff when there's feedback coming in from the teams how do you ensure the integrity of that feedback in relation to change or strategy
1: particularly uh, when we're looking at small teams and it might be really obvious who is giving what feedback and particularly concerned about negative feedback around the change or strategy
2: a couple of different ways you could go at it I think (laughs) Um, the first is you know the board setting the tone from the top that in the strategic planning process there is no hierarchy those involved in the sort of working groups and the discussions and the shaping of the strategy all have an equal voice regardless of who they report to. So it really sets a tone that this is about trying to bring out diverse voices, having open discussions, challenging each other uh, because it's in the best interest of the organisation to really kind of flesh it out and bring the the collective strength to the mind. If that still doesn't work, I would consider, you know, there's options like anonymous surveys but obviously that's more complicated you've got to set it up and even with anonymous surveys in a small organization you can still sometimes tell who's who's written what but yeah I think I I definitely think there's something about setting the tone that there is actually an expectation that there will be dissenting voices in the strategy process you don't want everybody agreeing because you won't get the best outcome out of that
0: we're going to do one more quickly if we can Morgana I'm going to go to the anonymous one that's at the top there. Can you explain your half-life theory further, that is, implementing 50% in the first 12 to 18
2: months? Yeah, and Tony Fara and I were actually talking on the weekend about three time horizons with a strategy, <laughs> and I think it is really important when you have your new strategy, you're looking at the immediate, the medium, and the, the long-term, and at the start of a new strategy, the long-term feels really, really far away, and... It's not where you're going to put a lot of the resources initially, but it's definitely where you want to turn your mind to and um, the sort of leadership focus. But in the short term, to, to really bring the new strategy to life and to set yourself off in the right direction, you want to move quite fast. And it's a combination of factors. One is it's to make sure you don't lose momentum from what is sometimes a very long, drawn-out strategy process. So you want to kind of keep it fresh, keep the momentum going, and move very quickly from strategy into strategic business planning. And with your strategic business planning, you're then really setting out often a, a three to five year view of the change initiatives that are going to happen, recognizing that particularly those identified for the later stages probably won't happen anything like that when you eventually get to it. But the stuff in the first 12 months is really critical to move quickly. And you want to jam as much of a significant big change early as you can. <laughs> there's also a bit of, you know, trying to fail fast on some of the stuff as well. So there's often some interesting ideas in your new strategy that... Organisation is not really quite sure if they're going to work or not. So, get them going, test them, learn from them, and recalibrate as you go along.
0: Fantastic, thanks, Morgana. There is a stack of other questions still to be answered, and as I say, Morgana and I have set aside some time directly after this to continue to go through them. Oh, so, folks, firstly, Morgana, thank you, so many amazing insights our work here is done. Thank you so much for being part of it. Morgana, if you can stay on the line, but everybody else, thank you so much. What a magnificent way of starting the day. Thank you for being here and we'll see you at the next Take On Board event at some time in the next couple of months. Hooray. Thank you. Hi there. It's Helia. That's a wrap for the Take On Board podcast today. I do this podcast because I love bringing good women together. So it's great to be able to share these conversations that I'm having with these amazing group of women with you. Now, can I ask a favour? Could you share this podcast with someone you know? Perhaps you can share it with some of your board colleagues or someone else that you know that's interested in exploring all things boards and governance. With your help, we can grow the Take On Board community. Last but not least, if you want to continue the conversation You can also join us over in the Take On Board Facebook group, where there's lots of great discussions, tips, tricks and resources being shared. I would love it if you can join in the conversation there. You can find it by searching Take On Board in Facebook. Thanks for listening and tune in next week for another fabulous conversation.